What's shaking, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. It is U.S. Open Week. The tournament at Shinnecock Hills is here, and there just doesn't seem to be much more of a fitting way to get us amped and get us psyched than to bring in my very good friend, Chris Durr, host of the No Gimmies Podcast, to get him in so we can talk about this weekend's golf tournament preview, everything that is going on. Uh, very, very appreciative for to Chris uh, for his time. So uh, w- without wasting any more of yours, let's get after it with another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. U.S. Open week, baby. I fucking love the U.S. Open. Let's go. Kyle, thanks for joining me on this week's episode, dude. little major preview, little U.S. Open Shinnecock action. You know, I I, I got to say, man, this is it, if this is starting to become a thing, you know, where you and me get together and, like, drink beers in the middle of the day from hundreds of miles apart and get to talk about championship golf, this is very much a, tra- a tradition I'd, I'd, I'd immensely like to see continue for, for many years to come. This is This is fantastic. This is fantastic. There's nobody else I'd rather talk major golf with than you, Kyle, uh, is... host of the Golf Guide podcast and all-around badass in and of itself, my friend. And Hi. before we get anywhere Ooh. else, dude, before we start talking about the cock, because I know I'm, I'm, I'm very ready to start talking about the cock. Yes. Uh, I think a, a congratulations is in order, my friend. Congratulations uh, on getting married. Uh, Big boss, dude. You, if I had... If you could see me right now, I'm ca- I'm clapping feverishly, dude. It's uh, very, I'm very, very happy for you. So big, big, big moves for uh, for Kyle Serlo, the Golf Guide podcast, dude. Congratulations on locking it down with your lady. Thank you, brother. High, high praise from the No Gimme's Empire. It's a, it really does mean a lot. It's the great part is too that like there's probably some people that are uh, obviously listen to uh, the Golf Guide podcast. Like, yeah, that stupid married fuck. He like blanked out on a fucking podcast last week because he just couldn't get off his ass and get away from his now wife to go just record 20 minutes of content. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, welcome to married life. You just don't get to do things that you normally like to do. I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm already settling nicely. So, but th- thank you very, very much, man. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a nice little break after all that chaos to actually just be able to sit down and talk a little, talk a little U.S. Open golf feels pretty goddamned good. I am happy to be joining you on this discussion, brother. Uh, <laughs> I think if there's any week not to record a podcast, I think your marriage week is a is a fair enough uh, fair enough time to not do it, dude. Oh. But uh, but let's dive into uh, let's dive into a little Shinnecock Hills Golf Club, yes, dude. Yes, man. Let, let's just get after it. Let, let, let's go for it. L- lead the way, Mister Durr. What do you uh, really quickly? What do you know about Shinnecock so far? Like, do you do are you coming in as like a, a Shinnecock virgin, or do you have do you have a little bit of understanding on what's going on with the golf course or the history? Because uh. Because I did a little bit of research and I feel pretty ready to 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 go through it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I'll do, man. I mean, obviously, um, anybody who's familiar with either one of our podcasts, you know, we've been on each other's show a couple of times. Like, I love golf course architecture, and I have for a long, long time. Um, but with that all being said, you know, I am not gonna. I, I do not know any more about Shinnecock Hills than anybody else that has simply read about it and followed. You know, followed it. I, I've never been there. I've never even been to Long Island. All that incredible golf that's right there you know between national shinnecock uh how do you say sabonic is it uh, sabonic i i don't really sabonic 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 is there maidstone is there like like all that shit out there like i've never been to long island so everything i say from an architectural and like historical standpoint for the golf courses y'all got to take it with a grain of salt because it's just basically whatever dumb opinions have formed in my mind based on all the other stuff i've read and listened to so I, I know a little bit about it, um, obviously just based on research, but I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge or experience at the golf course itself. I yeah, I have nothing as well, but it's it's Perfect. obviously got a very yeah, it's got we're, a very storied history. That, that held, means uh, we're just as qualified as ninety nine point nine percent of the other people talking about this week. So this is awesome. <laughs> and the only reason the other people are more qualified is because they're there right now. But well, <laughs> lucky them. Press credentialed fucks. Yeah, well. Anyway, dude, this this course, okay, so it's hosted four U.S. Opens in the past, uh, 84, or excuse me, uh, 86, 95, 2004, mm-hmm. and then one of the very first U.S. Opens in 1896 yes. uh, was hosted there as well. It's one of the five founding clubs of the USGA, so it's kind of like a home of the USGA, so it's a big thing for 
for the USGA to be coming back here for the first time since 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2004, obviously, for a quick history lesson for anyone who wants to know, uh, widely regarded as like a really bad U.S. Open because the USGA got – well, they lost the golf course, essentially. They – what exactly, they took out that, a, what exactly does that mean to to lose the golf course? Because like, I've heard that phrase thrown around a little bit, and f- as far as I remember, that 2004 U.S. Open did happen. Like everybody was there. It didn't seem like anybody was lost. And I'm, I'm like, does that just basically mean like all the fucking grass like died? Or I, I don't like. I feel like that can mean so many different things. So I'm curious, like, what when they're referring to the 2004 U.S. Open specifically, what exactly went so wrong? Because I again, I keep on hearing people like, oh yeah, that. That term was a mess, and I was like, well, I remember watching. I remember having like Phil and Retief Goosen having a pretty, a pretty good little match. And at the time, now granted, you know, I'm like 16 or 17 years old during the 2004 U.S. Open, so like I'm not quite as with it. I don't know as much about the game, but just from a from a recreational viewer standpoint, which is very much where I was at in 2004, the tournament didn't seem like it was all all that jacked up. So it's it's very interesting to me to hear so many people talking about it like it was just such a disaster. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't so much a disaster in the sense of the event. They did lose the golf course, which basically means that all the gra- all the grass died. Okay. Um, okay. So they just tried to obviously dry it out, make it firm and fast for the U.S. Open. They put rye grass in the fairways, uh, which requires a lot of water. Yeah, so a lot say, of the fairways your, started. I was like, there's your fucking mistake right there. You want to make it firm and fast. Why, why don't you just take the rye grass away? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they put the rye grass in and then tried to dry the rye grass out the week of the event. It ended up being hot out there that week. Um, and they'd lost a lot of the grass that just burnt out was too firm too fast there wasn't much grass out there it was uh i guess you could say it was linksy but it wasn't a very true test of golf because the fairways were so narrow um to the point where there was like buffers between the fairways and the fairway bunkers in air quotes like you know the mm-hmm. bunkers that are supposed to be on the edge of the fairway yeah, yeah. uh the the average fairway width was 26 yards in 2004 then there was like six or seven yards of rough and then the bunkers. so it was kind of like a ridiculous setup and for a club that's notorious for being like, you know, one of the homes of the USGA, you'd think that they'd want to put on a little bit of a better event and, and not kind of lose it. Um, the, obviously, the critical like turning point of that US Open was the seventh green, which is the Redan Hole, yes. uh, one of which came about uh, in 1901 when CB McDonald and Seth Rayner redid the golf course. Uh, they obviously threw in a bunch of their template holes, um, and the Redan seventh is one of the ones that. That has stayed, uh, arguably the hardest Redan in the world, according to a lot of architecture junkies. Once again, I've never played it, so I could not tell you if I personally think it's the hardest Redan in the world. Uh, but it's definitely one of the tougher ones. And when a burnt-out Redan you know, happens, they had to water it in between groups on Sunday during the final round because the green is just so severely sloped from right to left and front to back that balls were not holding the green um, if you landed it on the green and it was too like wet in the ryegrass part, short right, to where balls wouldn't run up either. So it was just, it became like impossible uh, to play and it just became unmanageable. And so obviously, you know, you had good players battling it out and a pretty good, decent leaderboard. But uh, but as far as like what the USGA prides itself on, which is putting on a good event, showcasing some of America's finest classic golf courses and uh, establishing a true test of skill to determine the best player, a lot of those things went kind of missing, and so it fell more on the USGA's lap. Um, Phil Mickelson, Retief Goosen, uh, Ernie Els were kind of like the saving factors in the sense that they were still able to play well and and draw TV ratings and draw attention to it, and you got a worthy champion in Retief Goosen. But, uh, so it was more of a black eye and more bad for, for the USGA. Um, this year, obviously, they're trying to get back to, to more of uh, well, they're they're just trying to get it more classic, you know, back to the more classic vibe. Uh, Bill Corp and Crenshaw came in and did a little redesign. Uh, they kind of just touched up. It wasn't a redesign; it was a restoration more than anything. Right. What William Flynn did in 1937. Um, William Flynn basically redid 12 of the holes, uh, or excuse me, he did 13 of the holes. Uh, five of the Rainer and CB McDonald holes are still as is. Mm. Uh, and one of the greens is still the same, but he pretty much came in an overhaul. Bill Corbin Crenshaw retouched the overhaul, and they're kind of going back to the the huge golf architecture buzzwords of the era right now. They they added width, they added angles, uh, they added they made the greens a little bit bigger because as time goes on, greens shrink because mm-hmm. grass gets longer. You start mowing different lines, so they kind of did like a nice little facelift on the golf course as a whole to to bring that back. Um, and they also replaced all the ryegrass fairways with fescue. So now the firm and fast conditions, if they want to burn it out, will actually hold 
uh, and you won't be losing control of the golf course. So pretty exciting stuff, dude. And there's a couple things that are really cool about Shinnecock as a whole. Like, uh, I think the average fairway width for this year's U S open is 41 yards, which is huge. Like that's pretty wide, but I heard, uh, I heard people talking about it and they were trying to bring it. They were trying to bring different lines of tee shots into play by widening the fairways. So there's certain holes where, you know, angles are important, uh, obviously, but most of the time it's when, you know, approaching the green, like what angle you want to have when you're coming into the green based on the slopes. Shinnecock has super severe slopes on the greens, uh, but you can always kind of find a way to work it in no matter what your angle is. Now they're kind of trying to entice players on those wider fairway holes uh, to bite off a little bit more they can chew and bring the, the fescue like tall grass, hip high tall grass into play and then kind of have, there's more center line bunkers and it kind of makes people want to, it gives people the option to go for the hero shot. I feel like in the last 10 years, the U S open prior to essentially, I'd say 2015, uh, maybe, maybe 14 when they did it at Pinehurst. Uh, but since then, or like prior to then from 2004 to 2014, the USGA really tried to make it like a test of execution. Mm-hmm. Just let's just make it hard. Let's make these fairways narrow. Let's make the greens firm and fast. And, and uh, let's see who can execute the best. But that in turn doesn't always produce the most skilled winner. So um, Shinnecock will be cool because I think the mental game will be really important, not in a sense of let's see who can grind it out the most, but in a sense of like who is managing their game the best and assesses the risk uh, of each hole correctly, of each shot correctly, um, and gets the most out of what they're doing with their golf game. I think yeah. that'll that'll yield a winner, which in turn uh, is going to be good for the USGA because I think they're going to have a good winner. I think you're going to get like a premier player that wins this event. You're not going to get someone that comes out of like, you know, the 50 to 75 in the world rankings kind of number. You're going to get someone, I think, that's in the top 20 that knows how to play the game and is, has a lot of raw talent and and is also kind of trending in the right direction. So I think all things considered, I'm really excited for the US Open. I always am. It's my favorite major, but I think it's going to be cool to see to, Shinne- to see Shinnecock kind of put show like put on a good face and and really like test these guys like all day every day while still yielding some low scores but nothing ridiculous. I don't think you're going to see 63s and 64s, but I think they'll be like, you know, a 67 or a 68 or two every day, which is fun cuz you to know that that's out there, especially for the guys that are in the clubhouse waiting to go out, someone does it early, kind of gives people like a little little shot in the arm and you know, you could see some some heroic shots and some heroic failures, which is which is what the U.S. Open's all about, right? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, it, it, you bring up a very very good point. And where do you stand on this whole U.S. Open execution versus creativity thing? Because, you know, I again, I I'm someone who you know all those buzzwords that you said, like when you started saying width and everything like that, all I just thought about was Andy Johnson just getting a huge raging boner somewhere. I mean, this is like the stuff he's been preaching to all of like the people that are learning about golf course architecture for these last couple of years. And it's, it's one of those things where I, I agree in principle with everything, but there is a little part of me that likes it when the U S open is just a fucking bloodbath. Like I, it's something, there's something about the U S open and just how unforgiving and how hard it's been uh, for the last 12 years that honestly kind of, I, I really like, despite the fact that it, it's it's contradictory to all the principles of design that i like you know i especially like to play but also like to think that most people like to play and i i I don't know it's really it's weird that i love the extraordinarily penal setup of the u.s open and i'm wondering with all the you know the width being added to shinnecock you know compared to the when the tournament was there in 2004 i wonder if all that is truly is going to result in a better golf tournament and if there's going to be a lot of people like myself that might be left wondering why does this seem easier than than it has in the past but i don't know what what, what are your thoughts on all this i think it might seem easier this year but i don't think like i don't think the winning score is going to be like 12 under par and i don't think you're going to see like half of the field under par so i i want the u.s open to be harder than the average pga tour event but at the same time, I don't want the winning score to be seven over. You know, I love Carnage. I love Carnage just as much as the next guy. I like it when dudes make bogey. I like it when dudes make double bogey. I like it when people are struggling out there and like really thinking and grinding because 
day in, day out, you don't really see that kind of struggle on the PGA Tour with those guys. A lot of those guys just kind of seem to cruise to mm-hmm. 68s all day. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that good, challenging golf courses that are hard and don't yield a lot of birdies and, you know, make the players think, I think if someone executes all of those things well, you know, stays patient, uh, chooses, you know, gets a little bit lucky, chooses the right lines, when to be aggressive, when he knows he's swinging well, and then, you know, plays a little more conservatively when he's not conservatively, when he's not swinging well. I think for someone, some of these guys, and as talented as they are, I think if they get it to four or five under par throughout the course of four days, I think that's still that's still worthy, you know, and they're still grinding, and it's still essentially a bloodbath. You know, if he was playing that well uh, at the Greenbrier, that well at Trinity Forest, you know, he would have shot 21 under par, 22 under par, but the fact that the course is difficult while also not being like... I think it's just moving away from that fuck you hard, you know, like that hard where it's just like, hey, like either hit the fairway, it's on a landing strip, or else you're going to make double. I think that's kind of like... I think it'll keep players in it a little bit more, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see big names, you know, over par at the end of the week, make the cut, but finish, you know, four or five over and, you know, eight or nine back of the lead, Yeah, uh, which is fine. Like, that's enough of a struggle, dude. Like, how often do you see Rory finish six over in an event? You know, never. You never do that. Like, the U.S. Open is where you, the only time where you get to see that, and I think there'll still be plenty of that, and I think you can have that without having the winning score be way over par and have the guys just, like, you know, get punched all day. So I heard... Uh, no, oh, no, no, go for it. What were we going to say? Well, I was saying, this is not necessarily a, a prediction here, but in, you know, let's say Chris Durr gets to actually determine the outcome of this U.S. Open, right? Like, you know, I mean, shoot, first of all, you're going to make a lot of money because you get to choose who wins and whatnot. But in your perfect U.S. Open world, what does the winning score look like? I think the winning score looks like five under. Because like, I think if... Yeah, like, like, a, but, but that's what you want it to be. Not what you think it's going to be, but like you would like to see the winner finish at five under. I would like to see the winner finish at five under because that means that he probably most likely had one good round in there, like a 68 or a 67 or, you know, 69, something like that in the high 60s, which is good. A couple under par, you know, Uh, it's a very, very solid round. But then it also means that on the day he wasn't playing good, he probably shot like 72. Like there's got to be like, you know, a 72 or something in there. And the other days where he just kind of keeps it together, he shoots 70 or 69 or something. The par is 70. So, um. I think, you know, like, I think you can have a guy finish five under while still having a pretty, you know, still shooting a round over par, which is cool. I think you can definitely see that because if someone, you know, someone's going at it or playing well and they fire 68, they might go a little harder the next day and fire 72. Next thing you know, they're even par and the leads at two under, you know, going into the weekend. Like that's, that's plenty of carnage. You know, that's plenty of carnage for someone who's playing really good golf. See, I I don't know. Again, maybe it's just because I've been brainwashed, but. When, I, when I'm watching the U.S. Open, if I see more than, like, five names in the red, I, I start to freak out a little bit. I'm like, what? why Why did they not make this golf course more difficult? If, if I see more than five guys in the red, and if I see a winning score lower than, like, minus two or minus three, I feel like someone somewhere did not do as good of a job as they could have. And, again, everything that just came out of my mouth philosophically feels wrong but when we're talking about the u.s open here it it just needs to be such an extraordinary challenge that i feel like at the end of it more so than the guy who played the best like i i want it to be the guy who literally took the most haymakers to the face and somehow still was standing at the end and i it, it seems like a wrong way to approach this but like when i think of the u.s open that's what i want and i there, there's a little tiny part of me that's afraid that I'm not going to get it, but I know how difficult this golf course is based on how many different people I've heard talk about just all the crazy up and downs, the subtle slopes that just end up just screwing people. So as an optimist, I do know this weekend is going to be wonderful. I'm going to watch so much good golf, but I'm just a little afraid that guys are not going to get worked hard enough while they're out there because of how good they are it may not even be the fault of the golf course or anything they're doing it may just be at the point where these guys are now so good and they hit the ball so far that there may not be a way outside of making the golf course just completely unfair that they can actually give me the result that i'm looking for is i'm in a quandary what do i do about this i think you i think you 
you're not wrong. Let's just put it that way. You're not wrong. But I think but, this. I, but I'm not right either. That, that, that's that, that's why I'm so confused. I, I, I'm I'm stuck in a metaphorical mess here, Mr. Durr. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those places. This is not the place that's going to throw haymakers. Like Olympic Club or something like that. Oh. The only reason that oh. I think Olympic Club and Shincock are very similar in a sense that they both require. There's a lot of undulation change, a lot of uneven lies in the fairways, a lot of hanging lies, a lot of you know ball below your feet lies. Uh, they're the they're you know, one and the same. I think if Olympic Club was put where Shinnecock is right now, where it's a little bit more exposed and the weather's a little bit better in June, I think Olympic Club turns into a place where people shoot four or five under par as well. Because you look at the winning scores at the last three U.S. Opens mm-hmm. at uh, Shinnecock, it's four under, even one under. So yeah. five under for three essentially U.S. Opens. Where if you look at uh, Olympic Club, it's one over, even three under. So Olympic Club is probably, you know, two or three shots harder, but I think the two golf courses play really, really similar. So I think if the wind starts to blow, like, you know, when you get up to those 30, 35 mile an hour winds that can happen out there in New York on Long Island, I think I don't think the winning score will be under par. But if they get pretty good weather throughout the course of the four days and, you know, someone's playing well, I think you could get to four or five under. So I think I think Shinnecock is good in the sense that it's not like I said, it's not going to throw hard haymakers at you all day and it's not going to like. It's not just going to knock you out, you know, but uh, it'll kind of surgically pull you apart throughout the course of four days. And and uh, and if you get on the bad side of some weather, the gnarly happens, then your your chances might be shot, dude. You yeah. might you might you might because I mean, par 70, you fire one seventy five or seventy six. That's not going to be that hard to do out there. And that's going to take you straight out of the tournament. You know, yeah. like that's 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 going to make it really, really tough for you. So. So I don't know. I think Shinnecock is good. I think overall it's going to be a good thing for the USGA, especially to get back to like a a classic golf course that'll also have like the width and the big greens and the angles and everything that they were trying to go for in Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills that honestly just didn't hit. Uh, I think this could be could be like a good barometer moving forward for the next 20 years of the Open as far as like what kind of classic courses they can take this tournament to um, that can also challenge the players. So yeah. All in all, I think it'll I think it'll be sweet, dude, and I'm really really excited. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll finish with a couple notes here. The one thing is that when I think of those super penal golf courses, I think the first thing that pops into my mind and may and may enter a lot of other people's minds as well is just like gnarly, you know, top, you know, top rough all the way up to the middle of your shins like no normal golfer will ever be able to get a golf ball out of there and only because these guys are so incredibly good at what they do can they actually save a ball out of, you know, eight inch long rough that is not going to be the case this weekend and i think the one the one factor that may still be able to provide me with that just absolute bloodbath that i'm thirsting for is that switch from the ryegrass back to the fescue man i i don't think that can be overstated enough i mean i mean i i don't know how much uh, the listeners have experience you know experience wise have playing on really tight fescue grass but even at 40-something yards wide, if that's what the average you know, width of the fairways are out there, I'll tell you what, man, if the superintendents actually allow that place to get as firm and fast as possible, um, and I'm not talking about, like, play it firm and fast and then at the last second, you know, want to get it green and water down a little bit. I mean, like, let's put these guys on the fucking moon and let's see how, how well they can do playing on asphalt. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, when you actually have a good agronomy team and you have fescue grasses, you can get that grass so short and have the ground under it be so firm that even a scratch golfer may sit up to a ball, you know, at 60, 70 yards out and have a wedge in their hands and literally cannot get the their golf club underneath the golf ball. It's so fucking hard. And that, that I think, is the one chance that this tournament has to be an absolute ball buster, is that they, they need to say, you know what? Let's just make this thing as fast as possible, and let's just let's just see what the hell happens. I want these guys putting on huge panes of glass, and I want them hitting their drives out into huge, you know, you know, huge asphalt parking lots like that. That that is the one way that I think they can do it and make it incredibly gnarly. Because, I mean, you got to look no further than than the Open Championship at St Andrews. I mean, there's not a whole bunch of crazy, you know, out of control rough out there, but it just plays so fast and so hard that seemingly routine shots from the middle of the fairway are knee knockers, man. And and that that is the one thing that's given me a lot of hope and a lot of optimism that despite the course being set up in a way that seems like it's going to yield yo- lower scores, that it still could end up being just an incredibly frustrating, but from a viewer standpoint, a wonderfully entertaining uh, weekend of golf, which is absolutely fantastic. And then 
Uh, the other note that I was going to say is I still think it's crazy because it doesn't seem like – it seemed like – I don't know. In 2004, did it seem like guys were already hitting the ball a mile? Uh, yes, but the, not as far. Like, I mean, I don't know what I don't know what the numbers are off the top of my head, but I feel like now an average drive on the PJ Tour is over 300 yards. Uh, and I think back then, I think it was probably just a shade under. But I think you know the upper echelon, the top 20 percent of guys were definitely cranking balls out there 330, 340. Yeah. Well, that's like I thought. Like when I saw what the distance was for the tournament in 2004. It was under 7,000 yards. Like I could not, but I was like, holy shit, there's been a U.S. Open in the 21st century where the guys were playing a setup under 7,000 yards. I that, that absolutely blew my mind. And then, you know, obviously now with it getting firmer and faster, I, I think you said it before that they lengthened the course, you know, over 500 yards. Uh, but the one thing about that that I thought was pretty cool is that basically Corin Crenshaw, along with the membership at Shinnecock, basically built up a bunch of brand new tee boxes, not only to lengthen it for the U.S. Open, but they did so in an effort to, for all those holes that they built those new tee boxes on, to restore the the shot values. And basically, they wanted to keep the approach exactly the same. So, hey, you know, William Flynn meant for you to be hitting like a mid to short iron into this. Let's put the tee box so when these guys hit driver off the tee, they got a mid to short iron in, and they keep all those values the same as they were back when Flynn designed it in the early 30s. And I thought that was super, super cool. And the fact that they had to add 500 yards to keep those values in place is just a testament to how goddamn far these guys hit the golf ball. It, it was just incredible. That that little tidbit blew my mind. Exactly. The 500 yards is huge. And then I'll, I'll piggybacking on that same thing you just said, uh, the shot values of wanting you know to have these guys hit what William Flynn, Flynn intended into these greens – that's kind of where that width pl- will play a huge role because now, for sure, you know, yeah, okay, you're going to hit your driver and you're going to have 145 yards in, which is pretty much a stock pitching wedge for anyone on tour. If you hit it up the right side of the fairway where, you know, the fescue is in play and, you know, the fairway maybe at its widest point is only 21 yards or something, you'll have a pretty good angle into the green. There won't be heavy slopes and you can hit a pitching wedge pretty close and may- maybe make a three. But let's say you hit one in the left side of the fairway and completely bail out. And you've got 147 instead of 141, but you have to hit it over a bunker that's got like a knoll on top of it, so the ball's running away from you, and, and the ball's going to want to repel, or the green's going to want to repel that ball. Um, the shot value's still the same, and you know, in theory, that guy has a wedge. If he hits a good wedge, it should spin and give himself a 10 footer. But if he doesn't execute even, if he doesn't execute to the utmost perfection, or you know, to the skill that he should be able to execute at, he'll have a tough chip from a tight lie on a chipping area off the green that he needs to get up and down for four and. You know, six footer for for par. You know, those don't go in all the time. So you start making really easy bogeys like that, and that's why I think this course won't really be throwing haymakers. But I think you're going to be seeing a lot of like, you know, missed six to eight footers for par because guys hit you know a decent drive that was on the wrong side of the fairway, a decent wedge or a decent iron shot that just didn't hold the green, but ended up you know just off the green in a chipping area with a decent amount of green to work with, but the green's just so slopey that it's hard to get it inside six feet, and then they miss that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of guys doing that throughout the course of the day, um, and I just don't think there's a lot of scoring opportunities out there. So so we'll see, dude. I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we'll see. I think another really big key factor for shot value out there is if you look at the par threes on paper, mm-hmm. uh, not, not particularly huge. So you've got 252 par three on the second hole which is huge dude, the mean, other three that's, that's so fucking long that's a, dude, that's but listen be to so this. ridiculous but listen to this dude the other three par threes throughout the golf course uh, shortest hole 159 longest hole 189 so these guys are going to be hitting wedges and eight irons into the other par threes that's three like you know essentially here's a iron in your hand these are the scoring opportunities hit this iron close which is funny because you don't really think of par threes ever as really being true scoring opportunities but out here they kind of will be, It'll and, and they'll be the best opportunities a lot of these players have with irons in their hand from essentially a good lie to a good, with a good angle, you know? So so I think it'll be cool. I think obviously putting is a premium in any U.S. Open, but I think driving will be a premium this week in a, in a funny way. Uh, not in the traditional hit it long and straight way, but in the in the traditional give yourself, or in the non-traditional give yourself the best possible look into the green. So I think it'll be a cerebral U.S. Open, and, and it'll produce a good winner. Uh, do you, do you, you want to... Those... Well, one quick follow-up question for you: Do you think those short par threes out there? Do you do you really do you think they actually will turn out to be good scoring opportunities where guys can make up shots from other part of the golf courses, or do you think with all like the basically kind of crown greens and the short green surrounds and you know the the high likelihood that just a slightly missed shot is actually going to roll off the green? 
Do you anticipate them being a chance to actually make up strokes, or do you see them being more like a 12 at Augusta where it's like, yeah, it's short, but you might actually fall off a cliff and actually completely ruin your chances of winning this golf tournament? I, I Again, since I've never been there and I've never played the golf course, I can't say with any kind of certainty, but I feel like there's also some potential for that to be the case out there as well. G- guys kind of just taking it for granted, looking at it, and all of a sudden, bam, someone bites them in the ass, and all of a sudden they're, they're leaving with a four and a five on the scorecard. I, I think that is totally in play this weekend. I think so. The one difference between 12 at Augusta and all the ones out here, the, uh, there's no water at yeah, Shinnecock. Yeah, so that's, water. you got water at Augusta, which is what that's what makes fives happen. Like And day in, day out, if there was no water there and the ball just rolled to the bottom, half those two are—and it's grass down there—half those guys get that up and down. The other half don't and make four, you know? So there's no there's no thread of five, really. I put it this way. I don't think there's much thread of five on any of the par threes. And because this course, like we've been saying over and over, is just going to, like, tactically tear you apart, mm-hmm. I think the fact that a lot of these guys are going to make some frustrating bogeys, they're going to get to one of these par threes and have an eight iron in their hand and be like, okay, like, let's— give ourselves a good 15 footer or something and let's try to hoop it. And I, I, this is, I guess to answer your question, I'll answer your question with a prediction. Mm-hmm. I think the winner, whoever the eventual winner is, I think on Sunday, I think he plays the par threes two under. And Ooh. I think that's, and, and I think that's kind of what propels okay. him to the win. Yeah. Uh, okay. Cause the par, there's only two par fives and they're hard. They're not scoring opportunities. And there's four par threes that'll going to give you less than seven iron or less than eight iron in your hand. Yep. And a lot of those guys hit, those pretty close so i think the winner the winner on sunday will play the par threes under par and i think that'll be kind of one of the keys to to victory because the the par fours you have to play solid to give yourself birdie opportunities and the par fives you have to play solid and there's there's no guaranteed birdie out there on any one of the par fives they're sure. long they're hard they're into the wind they have tough greens so so i think those par threes are going to be kind of critical for whoever ends up winning this week yeah i i can't disagree with you at all man i, I think that uh, that is spot on those one shotters mo- most critical most critical, dude. Let's run through. Let's run through some featured groups, man. Let's run through some featured groups. We'll run through like maybe four or five of them. I like that idea. Uh, just pick who we think is going to finish the lowest out of these featured groups, and then and then we'll close this podcast out with our uh, with like our you know favorite pick, like someone we think is going to win, and then like a dark horse that could that could have a good chance or like sure. a long shot. So we'll we'll end it with two picks. Sure. And, and actually, uh, I have a question for you because I, I don't know if it'll be. I don't know if it's best to kind of ask this before we start doing the picks or before we start going through the featured groups, but since I've already started now, I, you know, I don't want to upset any of our, our fine listeners, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go for it, my guy. So send it, dude. Send so it. So here, here's what I my question for you is that, especially these last couple of weeks, obviously with everything going on in my life, like I haven't been watching nearly as much golf as I would prefer to, but I think you is is it safe to say that over the last year or so, you've actually been following professional golf closer than you ever have before? Is that a fair statement? That is a very fair statement. Yeah, that is that is a very valid assessment. Okay, so I guess my question for you is, you're watching a lot of golf every single weekend. You're you're uh, you are absolutely more in touch with what's going on on tour than I am. E- even though I, I'm certainly, I, I think I know a little bit more than maybe your average recreational fan. You are super super dialed in, and I'm wondering if, with how much golf you've been watching and you know talking to the different guys, you get an opportunity to speak with. Have you picked up little things where you you can see things from guys that make you think that they are going to have a lot of success at a certain type of golf course? I mean, has watching more golf and being more dialed in allowed you to get a better sense of where guys are going in a certain tournament and, you know, as it relates to the outcome and stuff like that? Yes and no. I don't think just watching has helped. I've actually been like paying more attention to the stats mm-hmm. when after I watch because okay. I'll know what I see and I can – I. It's hard not to have like the 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 biases when you're watching golf on TV and when you watch golf on TV they only show the guys who were like winning, you know? Like they don't they don't sh- they don't show everyone. So I think the stats like looking up stats and stuff has been way more helpful in predicting who I think is going to play well. Uh and do you think watching... the golf stats in general are pretty helpful like I mean cuz a lot of people will argue whether or not shot shots gained and all that other stuff is actually a clear indicator of whether or not someone's good. I I tend to think that there's no possible way it could be bad. I mean how, how much you know validity you want to give everything is is certainly a, a little subjective. But do you think that following those stats has been a pretty has been very good in helping you identify the really truly great players and who's playing well, all that all that kind of other stuff? For sure, and I okay. think you kind of have okay. to you have to you have to shorten it down to like you have to decide what a short list is. So like 
what your shortlist is of stats that you're looking at. Because if you look at every single stat every single week, one, you'll be overwhelmed. Two, you'll never get through them. Sure. And three, like sure. you're going to end up at the end of it, you're going to, after like three hours of research or four hours of research, you're going to end up with like 14 names. And no one wants to hear 14 names. It's like, yeah. yeah, obviously any one of those 14 guys can win it, dude. Like, why don't you just say the top 14 in the world and see what happens? I think you kind of have to look at uh, the course and what the course is giving you. Like this week, uh, there's going to be like, you know, I think there's going to be a premium on driving, premium on putting, and then premium on uh, on just touch around the greens because you're going to miss greens out there. These golf balls are repelling or these greens are repelling golf balls. Uh, so you kind of have to look at the, each event and be like, OK, what are the three most important things here? Like if we're just going to throw a dumb example out there, like Hilton Head uh, is a short golf course that the greens are not that tough on, but you need to like be really like precise with your irons so number one most important stat would probably be proximity to the hole with your irons because mm-hmm. whoever's leading that stat most likely will be able to hit a lot of irons off the tees out there hit them in the right side of the fairway and then be able to attack the holes and if they make a few putts then you're good to go so like you just kind of have to figure out which stats you think are the most important based on the course you're looking at and then then yeah and then watching a lot of golf it just makes you like certain players you know that's all it does like watching golf just makes it so you can look at someone and be like yeah, i don't fucking like that guy <laughs> or like oh you know what i'm all in on what this guy's doing like i like the way he walks i like what he wears i like his swing which is a hilarious thing that i am totally fall victim to i totally judge my like how much i like players based on how pretty their swing is 100%. which is like 100 percent which is ridiculous for professional golf because every single one of those guys is clearly really good. Like, who cares what their swing looks like? But, you know, that's you know, it's just a funny little thing that I think a lot of people, a lot of a trap that a lot of people fall into. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I'm, I'm no, I think a lot of people are not exempt from that. I mean, it's like, dude, you want to watch something really entertaining. I mean, at the end of the day, for those of us that aren't participating, this is entertainment. You want to be entertained. If someone's got a goddamn gorgeous golf swing, that's going to entertain me. And I, I got no shame in that. Exactly. Exactly. No, no Dude, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. But so, uh, so then the question, the, the follow up question that I'm going to ask you then is, what is the one or maybe two statistics based on all the knowledge that you have of Shinnecock? What are those one or two stats that you think might be most pertinent to kind of take a look at that you think are going to, you know, be a good indicator for who may or may not be successful this weekend? So top tier statistics to look at for sure for anyone making picks in DraftKings or one and done leagues or fantasy leagues or pools or whatever it is, you definitely want to look at bogey avoidance. That's an unavoidably important stat for any U.S. Open because people are going to make bogeys, but the guys who make the least of them are going to have the best chance. That one for sure goes in as one of the top ones that you just have to look and see if any names in the top mm-hmm. 10 or 15 there grab your eye. Your logic checks uh, out. Like, thank you, sir. Yes, Another yes. really big one. Uh, strokes gained around the green. That's a big one because these greens, like I said, they repel golf balls. People will miss greens this week. Uh, you will miss you. Will, there will be players that miss greens from the right side of the fairway. You know, like they hit a great drive, took out bit off a lot more than they could chew, hit one, you know, three thirty, and it's in prime position from one eighteen or something. And I wouldn't be surprised if dude misses green because he pulls it about a yard. It bounces on a super firm spot on the green and launches over. You know, oh, so, I love that. I'm getting excited. So, just think, I'm just I'm getting excited just thinking about guys missing greens from 118 out. It's it, that, that that's the U.S. Open I want. You're gonna see that. I think oh, you're gonna see. Absolutely. I think you're gonna see that this week. So I think I think shots gained around the green is huge. Whoever's out there like chipping it well and then making the putts, you know, because there's like I think it's gonna come down to whoever can make the most, like you know, whoever can chip it relatively close and make that six footer. So I think guys that are guys that guys that are in the top 15 or 20 of both uh bogey avoidance and shots gained around the green i think that's a really really safe safe pick and someone yep. that you really like to see sure um and then another one like i don't know if driving distance or driving accuracy is very important like it's obviously important but i don't know if that's one of the stats that i'd, I'd put a lot of stock in for for this week because okay. uh because as well, there's so many good drivers of the golf ball now that like if justin thomas or brooks kepka or dj or uh, or any one of those guys that kind of Rory, any one of those guys that mashes the ball, if they get hot with their, excuse me, if they get hot with their driver and start hitting, you know, a lot of fairways in the right place at 340, which we've seen all of them do, you yeah. know, Rory did it at Bridgestone last year where he was averaging like 360 off the tee and hit like 80 percent of fairways. It's like, hey man, like how if some you, guy gets, how are you some supposed guy to beat hot, that? Exactly. How are you supposed to beat that? Exactly. How are you supposed to beat that? So I think that driving accuracy and distance should not be. Should that, like I said, shouldn't be a stock or a stat that you put a lot of stock in, just because 
the chances of one of those guys getting really hot with the driver and having a good week is high. So I don't think I don't think that's one that you should look at. I think that's all those guys hit it long and all those guys are going to be on slightly different levels on the other categories of statistics. Um, approaching the green, like shots gained in approach, I think is another really big one too. Like or proximity to the hole in approaches. I think that's a big one. The greens, like we keep saying, dude, will kick off balls away. So whoever has the best control of their of their trajectory, best control of their distance, can hit a lot of balls pin high, uh, will have a really good chance this week too. Um, and for that reason, I might shoot myself in the foot again like I did earlier this year on our podcast. And for that reason, I am not taking Jason Day. Jason Day has the best short game in the world and is an unbelievable driver of the golf ball. But in his two wins this year has been below the average in proximity to the hole with irons uh, of in the field that week. So he's won with his short game, and I just don't think... I think you're going to need to hit good irons up there. I think you're going to have to be just above average on proximity to the hole and then exceptional in shots gained around the green and bogey avoidance to win. And I think he's got he's got two of those stats, but I think that third one is going to be extra penal this week. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to say. I think those are the stats that you should be looking at and um, and you can make your your picks based on who checks out all of those boxes. Interesting. All right. Well, with that all being said, let, let, let me allow us to steer right back onto the course that you, that you had guided us to, which is these featured groups, which, by the way, they, they, it almost seems like a mistake looking at all these featured groups being like, there's no way all these fucking awesome guys could be playing together. Is, is this really happening? This is happening, dude, and I'm happy that USGA <sighs> did it. Rory was, Rory was bitching about it earlier in the week, and he said that like you know they shouldn't. They shouldn't stack groups on Thursday and Friday, but I think, Rory, you are wrong. They definitely should. Rory, Give me a reason you to are watch. better at golf than me, but you are also not a PR professional. Let's, you know, I don't like to be that whole stay in your lane guy, but I mean, shit, dude, do you have any idea what this is going to do for TV ratings? Getting all you exactly. guys play together, a group like this, this is what the golfers want. And you know what? Once in a while, since everybody else are the ones that's basically putting money in your pocket, this is going to have to be one of those concessions, my man. Exactly. You're just going to have to suck it up, dude. Yeah. So. Why don't we start with why don't we start with the man Rory then since yes. we're since we're already talking about him. Yep. Uh, we got Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and Phil Mickelson. Who are you? Who are you liking out of that group? Who's your? Uh, who do you think has the best finish out of those three guys? Between those three guys, I don't have any reason for saying this other than the fact that I just I have found that it's not wise to bet against Jordan Spieth in major championships. I, again, it's one of those things where those, these last two weekends, I have watched next to no golf, so I have no idea who has been the hottest in the last 14 days. But I, I feel like every single time, I'm like, oh, I think Jordan Spieth's finally somewhere where maybe he, he comes right back and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm in contention on Sunday. And I just, I refuse to get suckered into that again. So of those three guys, the one I would be most inclined to put a few ducats down on would probably be Jordan Spieth. Am, am I off base here? Nope, I'm taking Jordan Spieth in that threesome as well. Ooh, uh, Jordan Spieth having by far and away the best ball striking career or year of his career. He's absolutely just—it's a stripe show. He's driving the ball well, which has always been an issue for him. He's obviously one of the best iron players in the world. He's continuing to do that, wedging it great. Uh, the putter's been the club that lets him down, and you know what happens with putters, Mister Serlo? Putters get streaky. They get streaky, dude. They're streaky, and that's what happens as you get older, dude. You start getting streaky with the flat stick. And and uh, if there's anyone on earth that I'm going to bet money on to have a hot streak with the putter, it's that man right there. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think Jordan Spieth is a really, really solid bet this week. He's driving, like I said, driving the ball great, hitting great iron shots, not putting unbelievably, but that's fine. That guy knows how to putt well. We've seen him hoop thirty footers like he's getting paid to before. Dude, he's so, got he's got the young tiger gene. He he plays well in the biggest moments. And there's just not that many guys in the history of golf that where that is the case. I mean, what made Tiger so great is hey, when the majors came, you know, came around, T dub got turned up, dude. That that is when he was at his absolute apex and Despite the fact that his hairline is struggling at such a young age, Jordan has that exact same little gene. And that's why I just think it's so dumb to ever think that he is not going to be in contention at a major championship. If we're barking up the tree of receding hairlines, LeBron James oh. also has a receding hairline. Greatest basketball player to ever live. So oh, do, uh, do, we, do we really want to have that debate right now? We don't have to unpack that one right <laughs> now. We can save that for a later podcast, but... 
but I think I think you're I think you're I think you're thinking I think you're thinking I think you're onto something there with the receding hairline uh, being a factor. In it could greatness. be a measure of I wisdom. You know that, that could maybe, be maybe that's what we're looking for. I don't know. Man, I think you I think you might be onto something, yeah. but I think definitely Spieth comes out of that group, dude. Uh, speaking of Big Cat, dude, let's kick it off with Big Cat's group. Then we got T Dub, right. Dustin Johnson, and Justin Thomas. Mm. Out of those three, man, who do you like? So did did I hear this correctly somewhere on the radio? In that. Like nobody in the last like ten or fifteen years has ever won the U.S. Open and won the weekend before. Is is that is that true? Uh, I don't know what the number is, but pretty much on any major, no one really. I think the last person to win the week before was Phil when he won the Scottish Open and then won the British Open in back to back weeks. But uh, really? or excuse me, the Open Championship as yeah. they'd like it to be referred yes. to now. Yes, but no, you. that doesn't ha- that that doesn't happen. So uh, I, I thought about this. Which is just a great way to think about it. Like DJ, week in, week out, has what? Like he's always like nine to one, eight to one. You I know, mean, every he, single he week. Still, he is still the favorite in Las Vegas to win this weekend, despite that stat. Because I mean, that's one of those things where, like, even though it, it, it's still more or less in the eyes of like you know the betters and the bookies, it's still a coincidence. It's not. It's not something that's going to prohibit Dustin Johnson from winning. It just happens to be a crazy coincidence. And he is still the odds-on favorite to win this weekend, which. I mean, the guy's the number one ranked golfer in the world. I mean, he probably should be the odds-on favorite to win this thing. Um, this one is the toughest of, of all the featured groups to really identify one guy who I think is going to play well. My my wallet says it's Dustin Johnson, and my heart obviously says Tiger Woods, but Tiger hasn't given me a lot of reasons to feel extra confident right now. So this is one I'm going to spin around. What 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 do you think with this group? I think it's DJ, man. I think it's DJ. Yeah. I common, I don't think common Ti- sense I, says that's the right choice. Common sense says it's DJ, dude. I think Tiger is going to play better than people expect, especially since he's striking the ball so well and the putter's kind of been the crux for him lately, which is back to the same thing I said about Jordan, you know. Uh putters can get streaky. So, I think I think Tiger will do well this week. I think uh I think I think he'll finish higher than Justin Thomas, but I think mm. DJ out of those three finishes higher than, than the other two just because dude he's the number one player in the world he just won like confidence will be high like it's it's he's still got unbelievable odds and, and I mean if like I said if he has a week where he gets hot with the driver uh, he's going to be very tough to beat I mean the US Open he did win was on arguably the hardest golf course in the world Oakmont and he shot five under there to win or six yeah. under there to win so it's like hey man like you know if he has a good week you know he's capable of shooting five or six under on a u.s open caliber golf course 100 percent. and i and i think that's tough to beat so i think i think dj obliterates those guys i mean dude's an unbelievable driver of the golf ball unbelievable wedge player like he's just he's a raw talent dude and i think i think that's i think he's I think he's going to play really, really well this week. Why am I such a Tiger Woods loving dipshit? Like, I still look at all these names, and there's still that stupid, you know, part of my cortex. It's like, it's Tiger fucking Woods, dude. He's, he's, he just might do. You know, I'm just like, no, no. He's he's balding. He, I don't think it's, but it's like, but it's Tiger Woods. I just, uh, I just want it to happen so badly, Christopher. Can't, is it even remotely possible that he's in the last three groups on Sunday? Yes. Yes, for sure. That yeah, oh, I, I don't so. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that for a second. I think oh. if there's anyone on earth that can finish and that can play in the last three groups on Sunday, it's T Dub. Uh, I think I don't. I yeah, I don't think he's gonna have a bad week. People are kind of writing him off and saying that he's not gonna play well. I think he's actually gonna play very well. Off the top Loves of your traditional... head, did, where, where does Go. he rank in some of those statistics that you were talking about that you're gonna be paying a little bit extra attention to this week? Top twenty-five in proximity to the hole. Uh-huh. Uh, strokes gained around the green, average. Right around okay. average. Okay. Uh, driving, average. Bogey avoidance, average. He has made a lot of bogey coming on stretches lately, especially when he's playing well. Um, he's had a he's had a really good he's had a really good run. This of like shooting two thirty three on the front nine and then thirty six thirty seven on the back nine for like sixty nines that look like they should have been sixty fives. Yeah. So it's it's just a little bit dull, but I think the fact that he is hitting the ball so well and hitting the ball so close with his irons, which always was a big thing for him, I think that'll that'll help a lot this week. Um, and hoping he can get just streaky with the putter and make a few, I think he'll. Uh, I don't know if he's got enough to win, but I think he's definitely got enough to to do something cool this week. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think this is his week though personally. What I gathered from your intel is that he may have a average 
chance of competing this weekend? Average chance of competing this weekend. <laughs> okay, Evan, he has an average chance of competing this weekend. <laughs> All right, let's run through two two more groups yeah. that I think yeah. are kind of cool. One of them, the 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 all Spaniard group, which the yes. USGA I'm happy has given us. We got Sergio, John Rahm, and Rafa Cabrera Bello. But it's actually pronounced Bayo. But anyway, which one of those guys do you like the best? Hmm. Well, I guess this is where I have to come back at you with a very, very serious question of my own. You know, who's who's got the best home life? Of these three guys, whose significant other is the most attractive? Oh, I don't know who John Rahm or Rafa Cabrera Bello, Bayo are dating. Uh, I'd say Sergio's got the best home life because he seems really happy to be a dad. So mm. I'm, I'm, I'll take Sergio on that one. Well, this it was a trick question. One of them is married to a Swedish model, and it's not John Rahm, and it's not Sergio Garcia. So I think Rafa Cabrera-Bello is my guy. Of the Spaniards, I like Rafa's chances this weekend, not just because he's got an absolute smoke show to go home to at the end of each round of golf, but I just love his golf swing, and I love how chill the guy is. Every time I see him out playing golf, I'm like, you know what? That dude looks pretty cool. And again, I know this is a highly scientific way to go through picks, but for some reason, he's just kind of got the it factor for me. I really like Rafa, and I think these next couple years, he is going to be elevating himself to be one of the absolute premier players in the world of golf. Not not that he's not right there at the top, you know, the upper echelon already, but I just there's something intangible out about Rafa that I really, really like, and I, I'm going to be pulling for him this weekend. I love that. It's an endearing quality he's got there to be married to a Swedish supermodel and, yeah. and just be really good. It's very, it's very likable. Yeah, uh, I agree. I'm gonna ruffle some feathers here. I'm gonna say Sergio, dude. Ooh. Sergio, I like. Hey, he fin- you, I, I like that a lot. You're not gonna. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Sergio, it's a goddamn man. This is a man, dude. And he finished tied for 20th in Shinnecock in 2004, and he shot 80, 10 over par in the final round. Mm. So he was right there the whole time and just kind of imploded at the end. He probably got all pissed off, and that was that was prime time pissy Sergio. So mm. uh, I think I, I mean the dude is an unbelievable striker of the golf ball, and uh, I think he's just one of the most talented players on the face of the earth. So I think those things bode well for him this week. Uh, proximity to the hole and iron game is just always always strong. So. Totally. I think Sergio does that. John Rahm is actually the weakness in his game is his iron play. I think that's going to eliminate him. Um, and I don't. I think he's too young. His temperament's not ready for a U.S. Open. Uh, and then Rafa Cabrera Bello is is a wild card dude. He either misses the cut at majors or he finishes like T three. So well, well, what's the deal with John Rahm? <laughs> I feel like it was only like a month and a half ago where all of us were looking at each other like, you know, John Rahm might actually be the number one player in the world by the end of 2018. And I feel that buzz has died down a little bit. What 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 is your what is your guess? Because I mean, now that we're talking about how him being the weak link in the Spaniard group, it, it not that long ago, this is the guy who's ascending to the top of the golf world. What what do you think is different now from just a few short weeks ago? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Okay. I think John Rahm still has all the intangibles to be the number one player in the world by the end of 2018. Uh, for this week's event, I think John Rahm is the worst player in that group because of the two things I mentioned earlier. Sure. Uh, below average iron player, same as Jason Day, below average in proximity to the hole with his irons. So he's an unbelievable putter and has an unbelievable short game, unbelievable driver of the golf ball, which will lead to wins in PGA Tour events that are birdie fests. But in uh, tactical golf courses in which you need to grind out some pars and, and hit some good iron shots sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, that that kind of hurts him a little bit. And then I think he has a nice little tendency to get frustrated, which you can't do at the U.S. Open. So okay. even if he only gets frustrated for six holes, let's say he has a stretch where he plays six holes three over, six holes four over, I think that might be enough to to keep him from winning. I mean, if you if he did that, if he played great besides those six holes, he'd probably finish top five. But uh, but I just think I think that's I think that's the thing that's going to kind of keep him keep him back of those three players. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Last yeah. group, dude. Last featured group. Mr. Hideki Matsuyama, mm-hmm. Mark Leishman, or Ricky Fowler? Mm. Well, I mean, again, this you, anybody that's ever heard me talk about golf before knows that I love, love, love me some Mark Leishman. I mean, the big leash is is about as cool a cat as you'll find on the tour. However, Ricky's got to do it at some point, doesn't he? I mean, did anybody look better? at Augusta than Ricky Fowler. And yes, I thought Ricky Fowler looked better than Patrick Reed. You know, the, the fact that Patrick Reed finished one or two strokes ahead of him, it's just purely a matter of semantics. I, I thought Ricky Fowler looked the best and was playing the best golf from Thursday through Friday at Augusta. This this is his time. And now, 
you know, he just uh, he just got engaged to a you know a collegiate you know athlete superstar slash Instagram model whatever Olympian uh, Olympian. I mean, Ricky's on top of the world right now. What what better way to celebrate his upcoming nuptials than to put a little USGA Championship trophy on his mantle? Am I wrong, Krister? I like Ricky in that group. So. Yes. Yes. Just okay. As one last thing, dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of mix mix this final featured group also in with my with my pick. Yes. I uh, I picked Ricky to win this week in my uh, one and done league. I'm taking Ricky. I'm taking Ricky, love dude. It. He's arguably one of the most talented players in the world. Hits the ball unbelievably well. Puts so good, dude. Puts so good and has been playing great golf, dude. I, and light, home life hits in order. I think Ricky. I think Ricky is my. He's one. He's my pick to win this week. I'm taking him. Um, and I think he comes out of that group. I think that group, though, is really, really tough because Hideki's rounding into form and is kind of coming back and has showed good signs in yes. the last couple events at and the a Memorial. Good he- and a good Hideki is good for golf, man. I mean, having having a strong, top-of-the-world Asian player is fantastic for golf. Exactly. And I think Hideki's going to be rounding back into that form. Mm-hmm. And then Leishman, dude, on fescue fairways, firm and fast, guy from Australia, that's what they grew up playing. You know, yeah. I think he's a dangerous, dangerous pick. I think I think any one of – if, you, if you're if you in a DraftKings and you have to pick five players or in a pool and you have to pick five players, if you have a tier that's kind of giving you some fits, look to the Australian or the South African in that tier and take yeah. him. Because I, those guys, like I said, play on firm and fast golf courses all the time. And are all like pretty much every single one of those guys is unbelievable iron players. If you're looking at Brendan yeah. Grace, who should have won the 2015 U.S. Open had he not hit it on the railroad tracks on 16. Uh, you know, Mark Leishman plays great at Open Championships that are firm and fast, and plays great at U.S. Opens. Um, Louis Oosthuizen, who's got the runner-up in every major. So, like, you know, I think these those guys, those Aussies and South African guys, are dangerous, dangerous, dangerous picks this week as well. Yeah. But just because of the fact that I took Ricky this week, I'm saying Ricky is the winner. Uh, Serlo, who are you taking this week, man? Who's your win? Oh, to win? To win. Who? Give me, give me. Who do you think is going to win? And you could say two names. You can say like, "This is my guy. I'm putting money on him." I'm also wouldn't be surprised if this guy did it. I'll let you say two. It's so boring because I mean he's the odds off here, but like I have to pick DJ, dude. Like I, I have Love to that. pick the number one golfer in the world. If I have to pick somebody to win. It, it's gotta it's gotta be the guy who when he's at his absolute best is better than everybody else at their absolute best at this moment and I think that is Dustin Johnson my heart even though I al- I always talk about how much I just want to get onto my knees and just be Tiger Woods's guy I Rick Ricky's the one I want to see win the most this weekend I, and I think he's got a damn good chance I mean after Dustin Johnson I think there's like a group of three or four guys that have like 95% of the chance to win that Dustin Johnson is, and that's Ricky Fowler. As much as it hates to say it, I think that Rory is in that group despite not playing super, super, super well recently. Um, and yeah, and then obviously a handful of guys. My question to you, and it, it's, it's, I don't know why, they say this is a featured group. What do you, what do you think about the defending Masters champion this weekend? Where, where do you see Patrick Reed? going uh you know finishing on the leaderboard on sunday is this is this a weekend that he can come back and and, and contend uh no because he just he doesn't <laughs> hit his he doesn't hit his irons that well he doesn't hit his irons well enough to compete unbelievable no one of the, another one of those guys unbelievable short game but not the best iron players so uh and i mean i think right i think the first major after you win a major is the hardest because mm. there's way more media attention way more everything yeah. you know defending masters champion they'll introduce you like that for the first time at another big event and and he's just not a strong iron player so i wouldn't expect much from patrick reed this week well if you stay in that same group speaking of strong iron players is 7400 yards and change is that too far for zach johnson to be in contention on sunday no i don't think so because i think they're like i said there's the fairways are wide enough and they'll be firm and fast where he could play to the fat side run it out i don't think he's going to be doing himself any favors but uh but i think he could definitely contend that's why i think this event's going to be so world class because i think you're going to get guys like a zach johnson-esque type of guy in contention and you're going to have a dj type guy in contention as well i think this this course doesn't really favor anyone and at the end of the day is going to favor the guy who who just assesses assesses risk well and and kind of grinds it out and, you know, deals with making a couple easy bogeys, but can also make birdies when he needs to. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think I think I think yeah I think guys like Zach Johnson are in play. I think guys that that are shorter hitters are definitely can definitely be the pick. Sure. And now I guess this is what I'll uh, when you said when you were talking about Mark Leishman a little bit. I guess we'll go, we'll circle back to the course real quick before we start uh, wrapping this thing up. And that is with the golf course being a little wider and playing firm and fast. You know, this is something that we heard was going to be a huge benefit of last year's U.S. Open at Aaron Hills, right? And then, you know, obviously that was the big thing. I mean, all of us were looking forward to the tournament at Trinity Forest a couple weeks ago. Obviously a Corrin Crenshaw course. I know this is technically a William Flynn design, but ha- obviously Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw have their fingerprints all over Shinnecock Hills now. And what's I don't know if it's been a letdown, but last year's U.S. Open, the scores were really, really, really low. It wasn't as competitive as a golf of a golf tournament as people were hoping for. Trinity Forest, because they decided to water down the golf course the week of, did not play as firm and fast. And even though you know the golf architecture nerds really liked it, I think the general public was, uh, you know, the, I I don't know where they stand on Trinity Forest. I don't think it was underwhelmed. Yeah, I don't think it was overwhelmingly positive, but I don't think they hated it either. And so the, you know, these examples of the PGA Tour. It's way different for the Open Championship and on the European Tour. But on the PGA Tour, this philosophy that all of us subscribe to, that we all love, this minimalism architecture with big, wider fairways, cross-bunkering, you know, really undulating fast greens, it's the best place to play for us. You know, for recreational golfers and highly competitive amateurs, that is far and away the best place to play golf. But it has not proven to be a working formula, or at least 100% going to work formula for the pga tour this week it is dude this week i I, I hope so and that's and that's what i'm saying dude mark leishman those guys down the sand belt those guys that are used to playing links golf you got to think they've got a huge advantage coming in this weekend and it would be it would be so much fun to see these guys actually playing links golf i mean i want to see somebody take that damn flat stick out from 50 yards out and put it to two feet that's that's what i want to see this weekend I think you will definitely see that. So I agree with I agree with all of that. And I think this week is like I said, it's huge for the USGA, huge for width, and huge for for playability across the the game of golf. Um, before, before, like in in closing, I do wanna I do wanna share my picks. Like I said, I did yes. take I did take Ricky Fowler as the winner, and I think he's my guy, uh, my guy for the week. Um, another one of those guys, I guess, kind of like a wouldn't surprise me. If, if they you're gonna won. say the name that I wanted to share with you, we're, we're, we're gonna have to do a metaphorical high five over this microphone. So lay it on me. I was gonna say, I was gonna say Brendan Grace. Oh, oh, not. I was gonna, yeah, I was okay. gonna go, I was gonna go way out there with Brendan Grace. I think that's, I think he plays really well at the U.S. Open. He hasn't finished outside the top twenty in the last five majors, uh, and I think he's, I think this is a really good setup for him. And then, if you're into superstition, I don't know how many superstitious guys are listening. If you're a superstitious guy, I think you throw all your money on Justin Rose because in the modern yes. era, the three yes. U.S. the three U.S. Opens that have been played at Shinnecock, eighty-five or eighty-four or eighty-six, ninety-five, two thousand four, uh, the winner has been over thirty-five years of age and in the top ten in the world. The only player in the world that currently meets that criteria is Justin Rose. Nobody would be surprised. The last time the U.S. Open was contested on one of these quote-unquote top 10 golf courses in the world, I believe was Marion, was it not? Or no, Oakmont. Uh, I'm sorry. Oakmont. O- o- Oakmont. Oakmont fits the bill. Okay, so the, the point that I was going to make has already been shut down. However, I mean, if the guy can play well and win at Marion, don't you think that that's probably a guy that has a pretty damn good chance to win at someplace like Shinnecock as well? Absolutely, and yeah. I think Justin Rose would be a really, really, really great pick. But yeah. I think Ricky's Ricky's my guy this week. I'm looking at Brendan Grace to have a good week. And if you're a superstitious guy, I think Jay Rose is your man. Uh, Serlo Sauce, though, dude, I gotta, I gotta wrap this thing up. Unfortunately, my friend. Uh, Absolutely no, it's all good, man. Mister Durr, as always, it has been an absolute pleasure. I am, I am gacked for some good golf this weekend, man. You got any closing thoughts before we put a wrap on, uh, put a wrapper on this one? I think that the average golf fan should pay attention this week and and do your best to do just a little bit of research on Shinnecock. There's so much great stuff. Even just read the, the Wikipedia page. Uh, I think this week could be huge for the USGA and huge for golf in the U.S. Uh, to really showcase a classic venue, one of the first five courses in the U.S., and and show how well-designed golf courses can stand the test of time and can stand uh, the the overpowering advancements in technology. Um, and I think this course will be a really, really good showing of all that. So. 
get to a TV, share some time with your dad on Father's Day, and, and let's enjoy this U.S. Open, man. It's our national championship. Let's be a little bit proud of it. Oh, I love it, man. But you are, Chris, you are a, you are a true patriot, my friend. I'm, I'm going to do my due diligence as an American to do just that and sit my ass in front of my TV for hours on end this weekend. Love that, Mr. Serlo. Congratulations on getting married again, dude. Huge, huge life step. Thank you, brother. And, uh, and I will talk to you very, very soon, my friend. Perfect. Sounds like a plan, brother. Cheers. Cheers. Sweet. Thank you again, Chris. Uh, you can actually, obviously, find Chris on a multitude of different platforms. Uh, if you're not already, I encourage you to go check his podcast out. That is the No Gimmies podcast. And Chris is also present on most social media platforms. I know he's at no underscore gimmies on Twitter. You can also find him on Instagram. And uh, just a really solid and just tremendously enthusiastic golf fan, which I absolutely love. So thank you again, Chris. Uh, and yeah, everybody, enjoy the hell out of this tournament this weekend. It is going to be such a good time. Uh, I cannot wait to come back next week, maybe with, possibly without a guest, but just to kind of run through everything that transpired this weekend. So much love to all of you. Thank you again for listening. If you haven't already, it'd be a huge, solid, and the number one way to support this podcast by going to iTunes and leaving us a review. That is awesome. But uh, other than that, have a hell of a weekend, everybody. Enjoy some good golf, and we'll be back with you soon.